From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Trying to lose weight by dieting can be confusing. I mean, what strategy is best? Paleo, low-carb, high-protein, low-fat? Yes, <laughs> a recent study might have some new answers when it comes to counting calories. On today's program, we'll learn more from a Mayo Clinic expert. Willpower is probably overrated. So the trick is to set yourself up that it's easy to succeed. It's easy to make the good choice. And that's much better than, than just relying on willpower. Just saying no doesn't work with food. Also on the program, we'll hear about new guidelines for screening teenagers for depression. And understanding your options for over-the-counter pain medications. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. When it comes to dieting, you might have focused on eating fewer calories as the key to losing weight. But a new study published recently in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, showed that what you are eating is an important factor in weight loss. The study found that people who cut back on added sugar, refined grains, and highly processed foods, while concentrating on eating plenty of vegetables and whole foods, I thought that was the name of a store, whole foods, (laughs) anyway, if they did that without worrying about counting calories or limiting portion sizes, they lost significant amounts of weight over the course of a year. Outstanding. Researchers, <laughs> yeah, researchers hope that a focus on quality versus quantity when it comes to calories may be a way to combat the obesity epidemic in America. Here to talk about quantity versus quality when it comes to calories, along with other nutritional advice, is Mayo Clinic Public Health and Preventative Medicine Specialist, Dr. Donald Hensrud. And author of the Mayo Clinic Diet That's book, right. I might add. <laughs> Welcome back to the program, Dr. Hensrud. Thanks very much. Happy to be here with you, too. We've been doing this for decades, yet the latest statistics show that 40% of Americans are obese, and that's a significant increase from a decade ago. How do you explain this? Uh, there are powerful forces in the environment that are controlling our weight. When something changes that quickly, an increase from 34% to 40% in a decade, there are multiple factors that are influencing our weight. Uh, we've engineered physical activity out of our lives. We sit at desks. We work on computers, so our activity is less. We're eating a different diet. There's more processed food. And as you mentioned, a recent study showed that as opposed to looking at calories, focusing on real food has benefit. The bottom line with that is sticking to a plan and adherence to it can help anybody. But we have a lot of work to do because of all of these forces that are influencing our weight in this country in a very short period of time. Wouldn't it be fair to say that it's just all habits? It's the way that you shop. It's moving less. We have a habit of eating differently, and if we could just change or tweak our habits, that it would make a huge difference. Habits are a big part of it, I agree, and changing habits can make a difference. Some of these things aren't habits, they're in the environment, in the built environment. We're wired to take the shortcut, to Mm -hmm. engineer physical activity out of our lives. And My favorite is not only having a remote control, but asking a child to go get it for you. Mm -hmm. Or another example is we used to have to walk into the gas station to pay for our gas. Now we just swipe at the pump. When you do that hundreds of times a day, we're burning a lot less calories. And the types of foods we're eating, nobody has too much time these days, or few people, so we're looking for convenience, for things that taste good. 
but yet that's if it's too much processed or is high in energy density, it not only increases our overall calorie intake, but the health effects also of those types of food aren't as, as healthfully. So let's talk about the quality versus quantity debate. And is it important to count calories or not? Calories do count, but paradoxically, we're not good at counting calories. The amount of food we see on our plate does not equal calories. Sometimes we think that volume equals calories. There's the same amount of calories in one and a third sticks of butter, a small amount of food, as there is in 10 or 11 heads of lettuce or 35 cups of green beans. (laughs) So when you look at that food, it seems more food, but vegetables and fruits have a lot less calories. So yes, calories count, but if we can stick toward whole foods or a plan uh, in the Mayo Clinic diet, we emphasize servings sizes. And the only reason to look at serving sizes of vegetables and fruits is to make sure we get enough. And so if we can stick to a plan that limits our calorie intake indirectly by focusing on real foods, that can be effective. And what, what do you mean when you say whole foods? What exactly do you mean? Good question. That seems obvious, but it, it really isn't. Unprocessed. So the more we process foods, we add salt, we add sugar, we change the composition and make it a smaller amount of food, but perhaps more calories in it. Whole foods are in their natural state. So fresh or frozen fruits and vegetables. Whole grains contain all parts of the grain, the bran, the wheat germ, and the the white part, the endosperm, which has the calories. Refined sugar and flour has the bran and the germ removed, and that's a lot of the fiber and the nutrients. So whole foods in their natural state have an effect on calorie intake and on overall health effects. Those are the healthiest types of foods to eat in, in general. I don't know if I'll ever forget one time you said... If you shop more on the outside of the grocery store, that's the key. And any time I go to the grocery store, I actually think of that because all the fresh fruits and vegetables are on the outside. The meat counter, the butchers, are usually around on the outside. The dairy is usually around on the outside. And it's all in the middle. It's stuff that is shelf-stable and not so good. I, Maybe I go, delicious. I the, the chocolate's in the middle. <laughs> the Cheetos. <laughs> now, uh, we talked about you, you defined whole foods for us. Now define highly refined foods, some examples. And we're supposed to avoid those, right? Correct. The m- refining is another way of processing. So you take a whole grain like wheat that contains those three parts. You remove the beneficial parts. And what you're left with is just empty calories, so to speak, without a lot of nutrients in it. That both increases the energy density, the number of calories in the given amount of food, and it decreases the health benefits. So sugar, for example, has increased dramatically in this country over time, and that's probably partially related to the increase in weight. Refined sugar, which is taking carbohydrate and putting it into its simplest form, it's easy to digest, you get a lot of calories, and weight can creep up and we don't even realize it. One of the things, uh, going back to the grocery store around on the outside, the dairy foods seem to have gotten a bad rap over the last few years. So you've got the fresh meats and the fresh fruits and vegetables. What about dairy? Yeah, if you look at dairy in general, um, it's probably not the perfect food that some organizations would like us to believe. It is a source of calcium. And even within the dairy foods, there are probably differences. Uh, Yogurt and kefir with Uh, bacterial cultures, i.e. probiotics, Mm -hmm. are probably the healthiest. Uh, Cheese is probably a push. The lactose in cheese is refined. And whole milk with saturated fat is probably the least healthy. You know, there's been some talk in recent years about saturated fat that we don't have to watch it as closely. If you really look at the data closely, we still need to watch our our saturated fat intake. All right. Uh, You've been studying 
people diets uh, for a long time. What have you learned about the difference between someone who can take get weight off and keep it off versus someone who can't? There are things that have been shown in the literature uh, that are related to long-term success. One is, paradoxically, don't try and go on a diet. Uh, diets imply something that's negative, restrictive, and usually time-limited, and therefore people aren't going to stay on it long-term and keep the weight off. Instead, look at changes in, in the way you eat, just lifestyle habits. That's what we promote in the Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program where we show people what to do with in our, in our kitchen. Another thing is social support seems to be important for people. Uh, it's hard to do it alone. Another is to have a, a realistic, practical, and enjoyable plan. That's part of that lifestyle change. If you're try, feeling like you're going uphill all the time, people can't live like that, and so they revert back to previous habits. So there are some things that people can do to set them up for success, and paradoxically, going on a very rigid diet is not one of them. So tell us about uh, the second edition of the Mayo Clinic Diet Book is now out. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, New York Times bestseller. So what's new in the in the latest edition? People said they wanted more recipes. We provided that for them. In the new book, they wanted more meal plans, some ideas about that. So we have four weeks of meal plans in the new book. We also have a couple tables that I, I particularly like. One is a, a mix-and-match table for entrees where you pick a protein, you pick a grain, you pick a vegetable, and you put it together. So it's kind of like pick one from column A, one from column B, and you can tailor the, the food, your entree, to your your own liking. Same thing with salads. You pick a green, you pick a, a dressing, you pick some uh, additives, some toppings, and people can customize their own food uh, to their plan. So it sounds like there's a little bit of work involved in, in following the Mayo Clinic diet, but in, in general, the feedback has been good. I mean, have a lot of people been successfully using this diet? I shouldn't call it a diet, <laughs> this plan. Well, what's interesting <laughs> is we chose that term because that's how people look for weight sure. management is a diet. But it's more than a diet. It's a lifestyle plan. And we have received a lot of feedback. What's interesting about any dietary plan is that if people stick to it, they'll lose weight. Some are easier to stick to than others. We promote real food in our plan, uh, and we think that, that people can adopt it. It's, it's possible to eat well and eat healthy. I might mention we try to have something for everybody. We have the Mayo Clinic Diet book. We have the Mayo Clinic Diet online program people can do. We just came out with a great courses uh, course for adult learners on the Mayo Clinic Diet. And on-site here, we have the Mayo Clinic Healthy Living program where we have a, a two-day on-site program with a year of coaching to help people because we know how challenging it is. Yeah, and that's been pretty successful. It has. All right, we're talking with public health and preventive medicine specialist and author of the Mayo Clinic Diet Book, Dr. Donald Hensrud. We're talking about diets and counting calories. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll switch gears and discuss some myths about weight loss. We're also going to talk about food diaries. Is there such a thing? Well, I'm sure there is. We'll find out if it works. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with the Dr. Donald Hensrud. He's an expert in public health and preventive medicine and also the author of the Mayo Clinic Diet Book. So, Dr. Hensrud, we've, oh, you have a question before we get to the myths or matter of fact. Well, the diary. Food diaries. I mean, between keeping a diary from how much I'm spending and how much I'm eating, I, I lose out both ways. How helpful is a food diary? It can be very helpful for some people. First of all, there's a food record where you just write down what you eat. 
A food diary, you may include other things, where you were, who you were with, how you were feeling, and it can help people identify situations where they might overeat. Or how you they... are feeling is interesting. It is. And weight loss is very interesting, weight management. The psychological effect of that is tremendous. And people who've tried to lose weight, uh, i worked with them for years and years, there's a vicious cycle that develops. People feel guilty. They beat themselves up. They uh, Then they eat more, and then they feel more guilty. It can really impact somebody's psyche. We try and take the heavy lifting off of them and get them to enjoy food and how they're feeling when they're with somebody they enjoy. And paradoxically, that can help uh, help better eat better and manage weight. I love Cheetos. You love ice cream. There is an emotion involved <laughs> and with this. Don't forget, oh, ice cream yeah. and chocolate. They're both good for you, I think. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk myths. All right, myth or matter of fact, red meat is killing us. Well, if you look at the objective data, yes. Uh, red and especially processed meat is associated with an increased risk of colorectal cancer, type 2 diabetes, interestingly enough, heart disease, and overall mortality. Now, we're not trying to turn everyone into vegetarians, although if people want to, that's fine. But people should be conscious about what they're eating and here's where I use quality and quantity. Instead of going for quantity with things such as meat, chocolate, uh, cheese, and wine or alcohol, go for quality. Instead of having a double cheeseburger uh, with bacon and everything, have a nice filet and really enjoy it and stay on the program. So you can have your cake and eat it, too, with a little bit of adjustment. I, I'm doing what he said. When right. it goes to ice cream, I buy the high quality. I don't That's buy right. the cheap stuff. It's right. <laughs> Okay, how about this, myth or matter of fact? Obesity is all about willpower, not biology. Obesity is very complex. It starts with genetics. It's been estimated that 30 to 40% of our weight is set by genetics. In reality, it's a, it's a complex interplay between a genetic predisposition and a permissive environment. Willpower is probably overrated. If you think about it, all of us have some willpower. You, we've done things where we've really had to get our willpower. But when you're in an environment that is not conducive to managing weight, uh, it can deplete our willpower over time. So the trick is to set, a, set yourself up in a situation that it's easy to succeed. It's easy to take that walk. It's easy to make the good choice. And that's much better than, than just relying on willpower. Just saying no doesn't work with food. All right, how about this one? A low-carbohydrate diet is more effective for weight loss than a low-fat diet. The most recent recommendations from the Obesity Society, the American Heart Association, and the American College of Cardiology say there is no one best diet. The best diet is the one that people stick to. The beauty of this, it gives people some choice. Some people may prefer a lower-carb diet. Other people are lower-fat diet. And there are many different options. What we try and say is stick with a diet that has healthy fats and healthy carbs. The proportion matters less than trying to eat real food and eat healthy, and then the weight can often take care of itself. What about eating breakfast is necessary to lose weight? The literature is a little mixed on this. It's not entirely clear, but the majority of the data show that eating breakfast is helpful for managing weight. People try and restrict themselves and eat less, and I've seen some people eat one meal a day. That can actually lower metabolic rate and make it more difficult to lose weight. In general, when people skip breakfast, they may make up for it by eating more later in the day. All right, here's a big one. Supplements can help you lose weight. No. <laughs> that was easy. Next. <laughs> well, why do, why do people look for that then? It's a very di Losing weight is a very difficult problem. We, we want to believe in the supplement. We want to believe in an easy solution. It does take some time and planning, but it doesn't have to be drudgery. 
But supplements in general are not the answer. There, uh, there's no silver bullet. Myth or matter of fact, diet soda helps to cut calories. Well, uh, like many things, the truth lies somewhere in between. Diet soda doesn't contain calories. A regular soda has about 150 calories, so you are saving that amount of calories. But studies show that people who consume diet soda tend to weigh a little bit more than people who don't. And the theory is, it hasn't been proven, that our brain is tricked a little bit. When we're drinking diet soda, we may crave other sweet foods, and that's where the calories come from. Because your brain thinks it's getting sugar, but it ultimately does not? It get, tries to get it from other sources. So it goes, yeah. All right, no sugar in that can of pop. I've got to okay. go to the candy bar. Right? <laughs> All right, this one. It's tough to keep weight off because losing weight slows metabolism. Again, the truth is somewhere in between there. When we lose weight... We lose a little bit of muscle mass, and so our metabolic rate slows down a little bit. However, if people can keep up their physical activity, they can more than make up for that by burning more calories through regular physical activity. All right. You can lose weight with exercise alone? Yes, but it takes a huge effort. Uh, we can't usually get an energy deficit enough to lose a significant amount of weight. In other words, the calories we eat versus the calories we burn, we can't burn enough calories to lose weight. Studies have shown weight loss uh, is more dependent on diet than physical activity, although physical activity can help keep the weight off. It seems, though, that when I'm exercising that I crave healthier foods or I'm not, I don't crave unhealthy foods as much when I'm exercising. Am I imagining that? Probably not. Many people, I talked about a vicious cycle that mm -hmm. people get into earlier. You can be, a, have, be in a positive cycle where if you change one healthy habit, it's been shown in studies that other healthy habits can change along with that because you're on a roll. All right. A calorie is a calorie. Uh, I've once again, somewhere in between, uh, we, calories do count, but there are things that modulate that. For example, we know that people who sleep less than six hours or so tend to weigh a little bit more. So they're eating the same calories, but something changes in the body. Calories do count, but there are things that modulate that equation. All right, Dr. Donald Hensrud, thanks for updating us on diets and counting calories. Dr. Hensrud is a public health and preventive medicine specialist and author of the Mayo Clinic Diet Book. Dr. Hensrud, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll hear about new depression screening guidelines for teenagers. And understanding the options when it comes to over-the-counter pain medications. Do you want to hear and see more Mayo Clinic Radio? Subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Radio podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Or check out more than 200 Mayo Clinic Radio segments on video, now available on YouTube. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. When you think of dementia, most people automatically think of Alzheimer's disease. But under a new definition, the two terms no longer will be considered interchangeable. The new definition is part of a new framework for researching Alzheimer's disease that the Alzheimer's Association and the National Institute on Aging developed and released. Mayo Clinic Dr. Clifford Jack says Alzheimer's disease is one cause of dementia. It's the most common cause, but it's certainly not the only one, and that has been a source of major confusion. 
Dr. Jack helped lead the team of scientists who released the new Alzheimer's research framework. Currently, Alzheimer's is diagnosed by evaluating symptoms and behavior associated with the disease, but Dr. Jack says that can be misleading. So, in the new research framework, Alzheimer's disease is not diagnosed based on symptoms. Instead, it's diagnosed by looking at certain markers in the brain at autopsy or using biomarkers when a person is still living. That means through cerebral spinal fluid or through brain imaging. Dr. Jack says the change is significant. He says symptoms are a consequence of the disease, not the definition of it. People can have changes in the brain and still have the disease, even though they have no symptoms. So Dr. Jack says changing the definition allows research to better target patients and may allow scientists to develop treatments that stop Alzheimer's before symptoms develop, improving the quality of life for patients. And in other news, twisted ankles are super common. There's an easy way to remember what to do when this happens. It's a first aid strategy called PRICE. The acronym stands for P: Protect the area to avoid pain and further injury. R: Rest to promote healing. I: Ice the injury to reduce inflammation. C: Compress the area to further reduce swelling. E: Elevate the injury above your heart to continue healing. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives, and I'm Tracy McRae. Well, according to data from the National Institutes of Health, only half of adolescents with depression get diagnosed before they reach adulthood, and as many as two in three depe- depressed teenagers don't get the treatment that could help them. Wow. In an effort to diagnose depression in teens earlier, the American Academy of Pediatrics recently issued updated guidelines that call for universal screening for depression. The guidelines call for the screening at least once a year for adolescents aged 12 and up. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic pediatrician Dr. Jana Gavertz O'Brien. Welcome to the program. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thank you for having me. Dr. Gortz O'Brien, yes. great to have you on the program. So the new screening guidelines. I looked at this and I said, you know, that sounds good, but it doesn't seem practical. I mean, kids 12 and up at least once per year. I mean, how many kids between 12 and 20 or 19 go to the doctor once a year? So that's a great question, and that's one of the biggest points of discussion about this document: is how are we going to do this in a practical way? Um, the good news is here at Mayo, we have already started to implement some of this, and we have been able to do it and able to implement it. We have great support from our infrastructure here and administrative support to be able to do this from the nursing side, from the doctor side. Um, but yes, it, it does involve a concerted effort from multiple members of a team, and it involves a team approach. How um, do you screen a teenager? What do you do when they come in for their appointment? So, good question. So, there are a lot of different ways that we screen teenagers.、Um, first of all, we start off by talking with them, but this recommendation specifically recommends, recommends the use of a standardized screening guideline. So, it involves a questionnaire of sorts that can be done electronically.、Um, it can also be done on paper.、Um, right now, often the way that it works in our offices is that an adolescent will actually ha- be handed the piece of paper during the rooming process, and by the time they've the, gotten in the room with me, they've already usually completed it. And do you have the results? Um, a- it's a fairly easy test to score, so I'm able to look at it and I have the results within seconds. And then、um, you, you say you talk to the the teenager. How long does that normally take? 
I mean, let's say, so they're coming in for a routine exam, yeah. right? Um, and you think as part of that exam, in addition to this test, you need to talk to them. Mm-hmm. And, and what do you talk to them about? How, how do you know if there might be Jabari? Well, we talk to all adolescents during a well-child visit. Well-child visits, to get back to that question initially, too, well-child visits for adolescents usually occur every year to every other year. So we are trying to see them. Some don't come in, and we understand that, sure. but we're going to try our best. Um there's always a conversation that's a part of that. Usually we try and have some of that conversation with the parent there and part of that conversation actually in private. Um, there are certain kids that I might be more likely to talk about this more and delve into, and that might be a longer conversation. Kids that would be considered in the high-risk category. So kids with a strong, young people with a strong family history of depression, someone who's had a depressive episode in the past, um, someone who's there complaining of fatigue or difficulty with sleeping. Those might be subtle signs of depression. Um, other things that might be signs would be in difficulty with performing in school or uh, dropping the grades, which is kind of a common sign for adolescents. Aren't all of these, though, common signs for adolescents? Mm-hmm. I mean, where do you say, well, this is being a teenager and this is you've got some depression or anxiety we need to work through? And we're asked that question a lot, actually, yeah. by parents to say, well, how do I know that this is a teenager being a moody, quote, moody teenager versus a real medical (laughs) issue that's depression. Um, And the answer is really about the severity of symptoms, the number of symptoms of depression that are present, and the way that it impacts their life. So from my perspective, when it becomes time to act on it is when it starts to impact their school function, impact the clubs that they used to enjoy, and now they're no longer enjoying them. When a kid who previously loved participating in swim or gymnastics or ice skating comes back and they say, I really don't like these things anymore. And in fact, I'd rather just sit in my room and sleep. Those are signs that we're, ha- we're getting, that we're having a problem. The young people I see with depression, and there's a lot of them, their lives are being impacted in an every day in a big way. You know, it's sort of strange to hear you talk about this. And, and uh, because when I was a kid growing up, I don't ever remember anybody even talking about a kid with depression. And now it seems like every parent has a child with depression. Uh, I mean, what's the difference? What what has changed? So there's a few things. First of all, we have had increasing awareness about mental health issues in the community, and that's a great thing. There's still a lot of stigma around mental health, so there's still a lot of judgment that comes with this or perceptions of, I've heard people say laziness or that it's their fault in some way. None of that is actually true. This, this is something that's part of the brain, part of the brain chemistry that becomes messed up in some ways. I mean, it really becomes problematic. It's... Young people I see with depression, it's like they're seeing the world through dark colored glasses. Um, and our job as pediatricians and as people who work with young people who have depression is to help them be able to see things the way that they are and be able to enjoy their lives to the fullest. Um, so oh, I was just going to say yeah. for Dr. Shives and for myself, yeah. so when we were teenagers, there really wasn't a counselor or there wasn't services available to help us if we found ourselves in these positions. So we didn't even think about it. Yeah. We didn't even think about maybe I'm, this is the reason why I'm not enjoying what I used to enjoy. Yeah. So we, there's actually been mixed, when we look at this kind of statistics and the prevalence of depression over time, there's actually mixed reviews. Some of the studies say that there has been a slow and steady increase in major depressive episodes um, among adolescents, but there are others that say, you know, it hasn't changed that much from the 90s, 1960s to the 1990s when they've done kind of retrospective study. So it actually is mixed. We're not, it's not totally clear whether or not the rates have been increasing or whether or not there's increased awareness. Nonetheless, nowadays we actually do have 
some really great ways of treating depression. And we have increased awareness that depression exists. So people are, I think, a little bit more willing to talk about it in some circles, but not always. We talk about it at my house with our teenagers that, mm-hmm. you know, you know, your brain is developing and you are becoming aware of your mental health. Mm-hmm. So that's something that we didn't ever talk about when we were kids. But what is the, the first thing that you can tell a kid that is becoming aware of their mental health to put them at ease or to, how can you help them? Tell them to put their phone away. Be the first thing to tell. <laughs> well, that is important too. Uh, you know, the first message I convey when I meet a young person who is concerned that they're depressed or when I meet a parent is that there's actually a lot of hope. There's treatment. We're, we have shown that we can effectively manage depression. So young people who are depressed, we're able to plug them in with therapy. In some cases, we're able to use medications, and we can dramatically improve their outcomes, their ability to enjoy their lives, and we're able to get them back to school, back to work if they work, or back to their activities that they like to do. So do you go the skills versus pills route first? Um, it depends on the situation. We always talk about the importance of the community and the family, and we talk about the role of therapy mm-hmm. in almost every single case of depression. Um But there are some cases, and more severe cases, when medication is important, too, even from the outset. You know, uh, historically, the medications, and I could be wrong about this, but the the medications for the treatment of depression have never been great. Do you have some better ones now than there were a decade ago? So the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, those are like Prozac or Lexapro, Fluoxetine, those are kind of their names, there's brand names, and um, are a very well-studied class of medication in adolescence. And now, over the past several decades, we've actually been able to show that they're effective and that they work. Um, they're not without side effects. As with any medication, we always discuss the risks and the benefits with any any person, both the adolescent and with the parent. Um, but yeah, I'd say now we have medications that work and we have therapies that work. Um, so we know that if you're an adolescent listening to this who is worried that they're depressed, or if you're a parent who's worried that your adolescent might be depressed, there are things we can do to help. Well, perfect. Uh, you know, that's yeah. good to hear because it's such a common problem. It is. All right. Screening for Teenage Depression with mm-hmm. pediatrician Dr. Jana Gowertz O'Brien. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, the benefits and risks of over-the-counter pain medications. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Whether it's for a headache or body aches or back pain, you've probably found yourself popping a few pills. I mean, we're talking, of course, about over-the-counter pain medications. And there are a lot of options. There's ibuprofen, brand name Advil or Motrin. There's acetaminophen or Tylenol. And there's plain old aspirin. Do people still take that? Of course, I do. Oh, okay. These medications can be highly effective for managing pain, but they are not without side effects. And how do you know how much to take and which kind? Here to help us sort things out is Mayo Clinic Family Medicine, Dr. Summer Allen. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Allen. It's great to see you. Thank you very much for having me. Great to see you both. So over-the-counter pain medications, I think it's a multi-billion dollar business, uh, and there are several different companies that sell several, several different kinds. How do you choose? Trial and error? Great question. I think for many patients, a lot of times it is. 
they've found one that worked well for them previously. Currently, I think also it depends on what's on sale, what's generic, and what's available. <laughs> but like the, the generics bottle. are equivalent. <laughs> I mean, the generics are fine. They are. I, I often tell patients what, so I tell them acetaminophen or the ibuprofen, and then to look for that name, and if there's Walmart brand, Target brand is more effective for them, that's fine. They don't need the brand name Tylenol or brand name Motrin. What about aspirin? Is Dr. Shives alone in taking aspirin? But he's not alone. I think I think it may be a little bit cultural at times and probably generation-wise for how many use aspirin still as their primary kind of pain reliever or even trying to utilize it as a fever reducer. I'd say for many, what I see often is aspirin has been started for the cardio protection or heart benefit. And that's why many take that baby aspirin or the 81 milligram dose of aspirin. And most often, more people for pain and fever reduction are looking at the acetaminophen or ibuprofen. What is the strongest over-the-counter pain medication out there? I think it depends on the person. And as I, I thought about us talking about this topic, our mindset often is that more is better or that the highest dose is the best. And that's where the side effects come into play for patients. And back to your first question of Often for them, it's what's worked well in the past would be the best thing. And when we talk about ibuprofen and the risk potentially for poor or uh, adverse cardiovascular events, so like a heart attack or stroke or heart failure that could occur, what's been recommended is that naproxen, which is actually what's often found in Aleve for patients, would be the safer option. So trying to educate patients sometimes. It depends on what they're having to use a medication for and for how long. But one of the best, I think, a lot of times for patients over the counter that I see it most often used is usually a leave. Is there, I mean, none of us are genetics experts here, but is that the pharmacogenomics piece of it that for some that's why people say I like ibuprofen better or I like acetaminophen better? Is it because it's just what works for our particular genome better? I do. I think for for some patients, it, it's how their body has responded to it. Some of that gets into their genetics. I think also some of it gets into a mindset okay. as well uh, for them. All right. So let's talk about uh, each individual. What is ibuprofen best for? Great question. So ibuprofen, inflammation is one of the great things that it can help with and swelling for example, for arthritis or joint pain for patients. It can reduce fever as well, but that's one of the main reasons that people are utilizing it. Would you say in general that that's a better medication for people with arthritis than acetaminophen? Yes. And it's because of the anti-inflammatory effect. Mm-hmm. And the acetaminophen is a pain reliever but doesn't have any anti-inflammatory. Exactly. So it's better for what? Fever? Fever. Okay. Uh, minor aches and pains. It can work great as well. Um, young children, acetaminophen will work great if they've got a fever. And I have to remind parents that fever is there because our body's trying to fight something. They're, in general, children are, are going to do okay. They're not going to be harmed by the fever. Their body's responding, but sometimes they don't feel the greatest. So by giving them the acetaminophen, it can help reduce that and make them more comfortable. And is there a situation where aspirin is best? In the cardio protection benefits, okay. so if you're looking to do it to protect your heart, that would be where aspirin, and for many people, the 81 milligram dose is going to be sufficient. Now, 
Dr. Shives, because I work with a microphone and my husband does not, I get to ask this question and see if I'm right or if he's right. Are you ready, Dr. Allen? Yes. Because when it comes to either ibuprofen or acetaminophen, for one of them, you take just one pill, and for the other one, you take two. And my husband thinks, oh, I just take two of each. And I'm like, that's not the dose. What is the damage of taking too much? <laughs> well, I think your husband is right. I didn't exactly understand the question, but I think your husband is right. He thinks it's not a big deal to take two of something that you're supposed to take one of. And that's back to the more is better type yeah. of idea. And, and really for many people, the goal would be to find the lowest dose that's effective for you. So for some patients, one pill is going to be sufficient. And important and probably what's most helpful because it's hard for people when they go home to remember what they were told at the doctor's office or remember what they were told months ago or even a few hours ago is to follow what's written on the prescription bottles or on the -the over-the-counter bottles because those directions are there for a reason and they generally also have your maximum daily dose. See, following directions. Well, (laughs) I think you bring up an extremely important point. It is extremely important to look at the label and read the directions. Uh, 30 or 40 percent of people in this country admit to the fact that they have taken more medication than is recommended on the bottle, like your husband. Um, And it might be over the counter, but that doesn't mean it can't be dangerous. Oh, exactly. Exactly. I mean, there's a certain amount that you maximum dose that you can take in a 24 hour period. And you really need to adhere to that because if you don't, what can happen? Talk to us about the complications of these medications. Exactly. So take acetaminophen, for example, that maximum daily dose. It has to do with that medication itself, but also with potentially other things that you may be consuming or taking. Uh, antibiotic, for example, or for some patients, if they enjoy having a beer at night or a glass of wine, those who use alcohol, the way that alcohol is processed through our body is similar to how acetaminophen is, and it can lead to liver toxicity for people or liver damage for them. And so that's why we caution people to really be careful about taking other things while they're taking certain medications. Ibuprofen, for example, taking more than is recommended can lead to a irritation in someone's stomach lining or a bleed in their stomach lining. It can also lead to damage to their kidneys. All right, so you tell your husband one pill but two beers. <laughs> and he's and okay. while I'm at it, and if I'm queen and I get to say, we need to make that writing on the bottle bigger, but that's a different problem for a different guest. Yeah. <laughs> Over-the-counter pain medications with Dr. Summer Allen. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio, or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at newsnetwork.mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. Want to hear more and see more Mayo Clinic Radio? Subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Radio podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Or check out the more than 200 Mayo Clinic Radio segments on video, now available on YouTube. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. 
Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.